It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. The Fall of Kabul, one year later. In depth coverage on Inside Sources. We're spending the first hour of the program today just looking back at uh, where we've been as it relates to Afghanistan, where we are, and more importantly, what comes next. And really pleased to have joining us on the program Fiona Harrigan, who's the assistant editor at Reason. Uh, She primarily covers immigration and foreign policy. And, of course, many Afghans who fled the country as the Taliban took over are stuck in various stages of legal limbo here in the United States. There are tens of thousands of others uh, who were crucial allies and assisted the United States during the war are stuck still in Afghanistan trying to get out. And so what's being done? What needs to be done? What comes next? Uh, Fiona Jones is on the line. And Fiona, I appreciated your piece today, uh, really looking at uh, those who did help us uh, and where they are. So just give us a, an update one year in. Uh, where are we? Right. One year in, it's uh, it's still a lot of waiting for these people who had already waited, in many cases, up to three years on average to actually get a visa answer to come to the U.S. after they had served U.S. forces for uh, up to a decade in many cases. Uh, so these people, they were evacuated in a, in a very frantic process last July and last August. Uh, eventually, there were 76,000 people who came to the U.S., Many of them were interpreters, were drivers, engineers, and working in direct uh, kind of uh, collaboration with the U.S. forces during the military mission in Afghanistan. So they've come here, but in the years since, there's been no definitive legislation to help them stay on a permanent basis. Many of them came here on permanent visas that were going to lead to permanent residence and citizenship eventually, but about half of them came here with temporary status. And so there's been legislation uh, proposed in Congress recently. It hasn't gone anywhere, and a lot of people are pessimistic about its odds now. So it's it's a lot more waiting for people who have already waited a long time. Mm-hmm. You you pointed out in your story today at Reason.com, uh, you, you told the story of, of one of those who had uh, been a helper to the United States. Just give us some sense of, of that experience and, and where that stands. Right. So I really sought out to profile some people who a year after the Taliban took over Kabul and took over the country, um, I I really wanted to find out what life has been like for them since then, because very often we hear that having served the Americans is a liability and it ends up putting them in the crosshairs of Taliban fighters, uh, these forces who fought the Taliban for so long. And these people, uh, one of them ended up staying in Afghanistan. One of them fled to a nearby country. Uh, They're completely barred from public life in a lot of ways because they just fear for their lives. Uh, They fear that they're going to be uh, killed or tortured as uh, a result of their service. So uh, they're just destitute, extremely poor, waiting for any answer in terms of an escape to the U.S. 
but because of these administrative issues and bureaucratic barriers to actual visa action, uh, they're stuck in Afghanistan and and elsewhere in the region, uh, still kind of with a target on their backs because of the U.S. Uh, and that is, uh, to me, that is where we lose the, that moral high ground in terms of being a, an ally and a partner and, and uh, for people to know that if you are helping us, uh, that we're going to have your back, that we're going to be there for you. One of the things that um, has been noted uh, of those 76,000 plus uh, that uh, there are so few people actually working on those visas that it's a very small team in terms of processing those those applications. And that in and of itself seems to be a major point of frustration. Right. And my understanding is that something like eight people were working to process those applications last year, at least specifically in those roles. Uh, that's been updated to 50. And then last year when uh, it became very obvious that there were going to be thousands of people for us to evacuate, uh, it, it turned out that the Biden administration have to shuffle people from other roles, from other departments who didn't specialize in these sorts of issues to actually process applications uh, just because there was really no foresight into how big of a problem this would become. So it really speaks to how ill-prepared we were to handle all of this and, and how ill-prepared we really still are. Yeah, and I think that's so vital. I am a passionate believer that endings matter. Uh, I think the president, uh, you noted in one of your pieces uh, that he said, our message to those women and men is clear. There is a home for you in the United States if you so choose, and we will stand with you just as you stood with us. Uh, and again, I think that was a, I think that was a, the right sentiment. I think everyone believed that. Uh, but to your point, you, you have to have a, a hope. Hope is important, but hope is not a strategy. And it's it's clear that we didn't have a strategy for actually carrying that out. Right, and I think it's important. To, you know, I, I'm of the belief that the war in Afghanistan had to end. It was costly in terms of American lives, Afghan lives and taxpayer dollars. But if we talk about ending it right in that sense, then we need to end it right in the sense of doing right by the people who helped us. And the military mission wouldn't have been possible without the help of tens of thousands of, of Afghan helpers. Uh, and now for them to be abandoned and uh, still at risk because of their service to the Americans, it's it's really a, a dark mark on this, this anniversary, uh, even darker than the fact that the country fell so quickly uh, after 20 years of, of nation building and, and war there. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, earlier in, uh, in a piece last week in terms of some of those things on the horizon as it relates to Congress and something actually being done. Uh, what has been introduced? And obviously everyone's away at the uh, August recess now. Uh, but is there any hope on the horizon as they reconvene in September uh, before they jump into a, obviously a very busy midterm election cycle? Right. The midterms, it's, it's believed that those are going to really complicate a lot of immigration discussions and a lot of the momentum that's been building on immigration issues. Uh, but last week, some lawmakers introduced the Afghan Adjustment Act. I think it's important to note that it's bipartisan, which is really impressive for anything immigration related. Uh, so it's been introduced in the Senate and the House, and it would offer some certainty to the Afghans who have settled here in the past year after being evacuated. Uh, it would provide for them to become lawful permanent residents, something that isn't assured to about half of the people who came here just because they didn't come here on devoted visas. Uh, so that would be really, really helpful in that regard, just essentially guaranteeing that they won't be deported to a place where they face near certain death 
and that they'll be allowed to stay here and build lives and continue building the lives that they're building. Um, but passage is, is really murky at the moment, given how controversial immigration can be and given the controversy that surrounds Afghan refugees in general, unfortunately. So I think it's it's facing some pretty long odds and congressional aides are, are kind of hinting at the same, uh, which is it's just unfortunate because I think it's it's good legislation. It's not unprecedented and it would really help a large group of people. Yeah, I think that's so vital. And uh, again, it's one of those where. Uh, Congress can act and should act. Uh, like you said, it's a bipartisan effort. And again, these are folks that we uh, stood side by side and shoulder to shoulder with. Uh, and uh, as you pointed out, uh, we're the ones who made a lot of those things possible uh, in terms of any kind of progress. And uh, I think just for them to have certainty in a path uh, and not just the mental gymnastics of not knowing how long or if they have to go back or where they go, uh, I think that is the the minimum of the minimum that uh, that we can do. Anything else that you're watching for, Fiona, as we uh, kind of roll into the fall? And uh, uh, my fear is that, that, like most things, we we move far too fast uh, and take uh, far too little time to actually evaluate and reflect on where we've been, uh, so that we can do things a little different, a little better next round. Yeah, I think it's important that people just. Remember that the war didn't end when we said it ended necessarily, mm-hmm. that there's still this large class of people, these people who were extremely helpful and instrumental in our war um, that are left behind and they're begging not to be forgotten, essentially. Um, and it's still taking in many cases well over a year, a year and a half for them to even get an answer as to whether their applications will be processed or accepted. Uh, so on the Afghan front, I think that's especially important internationally. But domestically, I just think it's really critical for us to remember that these people fought for the American ideal and were in many cases patriotic for this country that they'd yeah. never even visited firsthand. Mm. Um, and for us to kind of offer a welcome, it would just be in line with so much of their spiritual and kind of emotional solidarity, things that they've offered us at, at really just on a generous level. So I think we should realize that it would be good for everyone, and I really hope that people do. Uh, fantastic. Uh, Fiona, that's a great perspective and insight, and we have a, a large number here in the state of Utah uh, that have been welcomed with open arms and, and become part of the community. And, and you struck something uh, that I just want to take one second on, and that is uh, this whole idea that I think what the Taliban or a Vladimir Putin or China, what they fear the most uh, is that freedom, uh, that uh, those values, those ideals that uh, allowed the women of Afghanistan for almost two decades to be educated, to go into the workforce, to hold important positions in government, to make a difference in their community. Uh, and these are people who fought side by side. Uh, for those ideals. And those ideas are what are really powerful. And uh, Fiona, appreciate your perspective and your insight as always. Uh, Great piece. And we'll put that up on our social channels today as well. Fiona Harrigan is the assistant editor at Reason. Uh, Again, she primarily focuses on immigration and foreign policy and always provides us a great, great perspective in all of this. Fiona, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. We'll step aside for a quick commercial break. We'll round out hour number one as we take a look back at where we've been over the last year as it relates to Afghanistan. And more importantly, what comes next? What is our duty and responsibility? How do we ensure that freedom continues to flourish around the world? Stick around. Two. 
two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.